Hello, Edgar, and uh, thank you for having me, and thank you for the opportunity to discuss the Keynote 942 mRNA-4157 Pembrolizumab versus Pembrolizumab Phase two randomized trial. Uh, this was a trial uh, that was uh, the results of which were presented uh, at the recent AACR meeting in Orlando, Florida, and I was the principal investigator of the trial. This was a randomized phase two trial of a little over 150 patients, which really for the first time uh, asked whether there was a difference in clinical benefit and toxicity between administering a neoantigen vaccine with a checkpoint inhibitor, pembrolizumab, the PD-1 blocking antibody, compared with pembrolizumab alone. And the uh, genesis of the trial is that, as you know, there have been a number of early phase, phase one, uh, small phase two trials of neoantigen approaches with peptides, uh, DNA, uh, RNA vaccines, um, and uh, they've all been single arm trials. Uh, escalating doses with some interesting immunogenicity data. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, you have to stop your uh, uh, developmental program and ask the question whether the approach of giving a neoantigen vaccine, either alone or added to checkpoint inhibition, uh, induces greater benefit than the control arm, say, of the PD-1 antibody alone. And that was the genesis of this trial. The uh, vaccine is a messenger RNA vaccine. Uh, it is interestingly somewhat similar to the Moderna COVID vaccine. Uh, ironically, the current trial started in early 2019, as I recall. So it came before the pandemic. So the COVID uh, vaccine was actually based more on the uh, uh, melanoma mRNA vaccine, not vice versa. At any rate, this was an mRNA vaccine, a single strand of messenger RNA that's encapsulated in a nanoparticle formulation that can uh, contain up to 34 neoantigen sequences. And uh, the way it is utilized is uh, the patients are seen, they're biopsied. Usually we would have a core or two core biopsies. You need relatively little material and uh, the material uh, gets uh, both uh, whole exome and RNA sequencing. Uh, a sample of peripheral blood mononuclear cells uh, gets a whole exome sequencing. And you look for the so-called SNV, single nucleotide variants, the mutations that are tumor-specific, not present in the normal tissue. And there's a computerized algorithm uh, based on some older data and some more innovative, newer data that directs you to what you think are the best sequences that might give rise to T cells that would have clinical utility. And it, in part, it's based on the uh, HLA type of the patient, the binding of the potential mutated peptide to the MHC, as well as a variety of other factors. Interestingly, it takes only about six to seven weeks to construct the messenger RNA sequence. Once the, you know, the sequencing goes very quickly, it literally takes days to do whole exome sequencing these days and RNA sequencing. And uh, it takes about seven weeks on average to make the vaccine. In the trial, the patients all had resected stage 3B, 3C, 3D, and 4 melanoma. Uh, interestingly, in this trial, there were no 3Bs because the 3B criteria were very restrictive. So they were all 3Cs, 3Ds, and 4s rendered free of disease. This is a very high-risk group of patients, all with greater than a 50% risk of relapse at five years. So the biopsy would be done. The patients would have uh, surgery. 
and then um, uh, upon recovery, uh, they would be um, uh, administered their first two doses of pembrolizumab because during the time that the pembrolizumab is administered, the vaccine is being produced. On average, patients then had their vaccine administered two to three doses of pembrolizumab later. Uh, I think it's a good idea because pembrolizumab is an approved drug with clinical efficacy at prolonging recurrence-free survival in resected stage three melanoma. So obviously there's benefit from starting the pembrolizumab. It sort of holds them in place, so to speak, to uh, avoid recurrence during the time the vaccine is being made. It's only about seven weeks. And then simultaneously, they would begin nine vaccinations at a milligram each dose intramuscularly with the pembrolizumab all done on the same day. So they come in, they'd be seen by us, get their blood drawn, get the uh, pembrolizumab and get the vaccination all at the same sitting. And uh, uh, with pembrolizumab, as you remember, the FDA approved regimen is every three weeks for approximately 18 doses for a total of one year. So if they started at dose three, they'd finish at dose 12, and then they'd get the remaining six doses of pembrolizumab alone. The uh, regimen, the combination was relatively well tolerated. As you can expect, there were significant vaccine-related side effects. Uh, most of them, in fact, 89% of them or so were grade one and two. They were fairly well tolerated. There were some grade three side effects due to the vaccine, chiefly fevers. Um, but the expected side effects, as you would have expected if you had a COVID vaccine, would be feverishness, chills, lethargy, and fatigue for a day or two after the vaccine. You could have muscle aches. Um, and uh, I would say it would be similar side effects, perhaps slightly exaggerated compared to a COVID vaccine, because remember, the patients were getting pembrolizumab at the same time, not just the vaccine alone, as with the COVID vaccine. The overall serious adverse events were similar between the arms. The grade 3-4 treatment-related, immune-related adverse events were similar between the arms. But as you can imagine, the overall total side effects that were treatment-related were higher because you were having more grade one and two, predominantly grade one and two vaccine-related side effects in the combination arm. But altogether, in my opinion, well-tolerated. Um, I don't think we had a single patient in our institution. We probably had a couple of dozen patients between several trials, or maybe 20 patients between several trials who had to stop because of a vaccine-related side effect. Of course, the uh, rate of pembrolizumab-related, immune-related adverse events would be similar between the arms, and that could cause someone to stop. Um, the clinical results were that there was a definite difference in recurrence-free survival over time with two years of follow-up on either arm, where the hazard ratio was 0.56, reflecting a 44% reduction in the risk of recurrence over time. And the original statistical plan, since it was a randomized phase two, uh, only called for an alpha error of 0.1 when you had a hazard ratio of 0.5. So the one-sided p-value was 0.026. The two-sided p-value, which is what most people would think of, is 0.52. So it's just above where you would think of statistical significance. Nonetheless, those were the initial data. Uh, there are now distant metastasis-free survival data, which will be reported as an oral presentation by one of my Australian colleagues uh, on that trial. That'll be done at ASCO. Uh, I, I can't tell you the results, but I think the fact that the data are being presented as an oral abstract would suggest that there were very favorable distant metastasis-free survival at two years of follow-up. 
we now will have more follow-up over time uh, at ESMO, I hope, uh, and I would have a high degree of suspicion that those data will look just as good, if not better, than the current data. Uh, of interest is that the recurrence-free survival curves don't break apart till about eight months, which is interesting. Uh, there are various explanations for that. Uh, my favorite explanation is it takes a certain amount of vaccinations to mount a potentially clinically impactful immune response. And I think the difference in the recurrence-free survival curves Remember, you've got active treatment on both arms, right? Pembrolizumab. The difference is going to be the vaccine. If it takes three, four, five vaccinations, plus the fact that you start at week seven, add four vaccines times three is 12 weeks, plus seven weeks is 19 weeks. All of a sudden, you know, you're getting out there in terms of amount of time. So the curves may break late due to that factor. There could be other explanations. I'm just telling you what my wearing my immunologist hat, what my favorite explanation is. Now, as I indicated in my discussion at uh, AACR, there are various caveats and quid pro quos that always go with a randomized phase two trial. I'm a big fan of the randomized phase two approach. The reason why we do such trials is to give an early indication of whether the experimental arm is going to generate clinical benefit more than the control arm. And it is not intended as a definitive study. Um, uh, obviously, 157 patients does not constitute a 1,000 patient definitive randomized phase three study. Um, the follow-up was modest. It was two years. It was not five years. Nonetheless, I think the totality of the data suggests that there was clinical benefit to the combination compared to single-agent pembrolizumab. I believe that over time, both distant metastasis-free and recurrence-free survival will continue, those curves will continue to come apart. Uh, there will be sustained benefit over time. And these data, of course, are sufficiently promising so that uh, a phase three randomized trial of mRNA-4157 with pembrolizumab versus pembrolizumab alone will be initiated in this summer. It'll be about 1,000 patients. It'll be stage 2B, 2C, 3A, B, C, D, and four resected patients. So all scenarios where there's clinical potential benefit for PD-1 blockade. And I have high hopes that that trial will indeed definitively prove the benefit of the addition of the mRNA vaccine to pembrolizumab, which will render it more beneficial for patients in terms of recurrence-free and distant metastasis-free survival than pembrolizumab alone. In the randomized phase two, there were a limited number of patients who had apheresis before and after treatment. Um, there have been relatively limited assays done, and the ones that have been done look very encouraging that you can see uh, ex vivo LE spot T cell responses to significant numbers of those neoantigens. I don't think there's been a neoantigen study done with peptides, DNA, or RNA where all the neoantigens in the vaccine generated reactivity ex vivo with T cells. Uh, I suspect you're gonna find the same thing here. There have been uh, posters presented this past year at other meetings where uh, data from the early phase one study of the messenger RNA vaccine 4157 with Pembro were presented. And I think that you'll find uh, similar data from the current trial suggesting that um, a significant number of the neoantigens can generate responses.
Um, it would take a huge effort, which uh, the current trial does not have sufficient data to support, to determine whether there's a pattern of neoantigen reactivity that's associated with response. Um, that will be determined in the expansion cohort of another 100 patients on the randomized phase two trial, where we're gonna basically collect PBMC and leukophoresis, everybody we possibly can at baseline after vaccination in Pembro, and then actually six to 12 months later to look at persistence over time. But there are really very limited data available currently. Um, you know, the only interesting data on persistence come from Kathy Wu and Patrick Ott at Dana-Farber, where they use peptide vaccines and they could see in some patients persistence a year, two years after vaccinations ended. So I have high hopes that when we conduct our current trial, we'll see the same thing. I think the summary and the uh, assessment of the clinical significance and impact of the randomized phase two trial of the 4157 vaccine with Pembro versus Pembro alone is that it's the first randomized trial that shows benefit for a neoantigen vaccine approach of any type. It's the first trial of a mRNA vaccine in melanoma. And it's the first trial in any cancer that was a phase two randomized trial where there was a control arm showing benefit for the addition of the neoantigen vaccine to an established approach, in this case, of course, the PD-1 antibody pembrolizumab. So I think it has a number of firsts. It has high impact. Uh, we've discussed the caveats and the quid pro quos about the moderate size and follow-up study. But taken together, I think that these data are highly encouraging and almost surely clinically significant.